Welcome to the DoDash Investability Podcast. More than 90% of startups fail in the first year of existence. 4 out of 10 because they don't have enough capital and financial resources. Another 5 out of 10 because of a team composition and product market fit. Here at DoDash, we want to assist you in becoming an investable and consumer-focused business and not become a 9 out of these 10, but the 1. For that, in this podcast, we're going to cover entrepreneurs, experts and investors from which you will be able to learn how to become an investable business and succeed. Stay tuned and enjoy. Well, thank you, Vivat, uh, for joining me today for this interview. Um, I'm very happy to talk with you about your experience as a social entrepreneur doing multiple projects and currently working on the one called MIGPORT. And I guess we can just start right away by maybe you giving us like your elevator pitch of what you're doing and which value you're adding. Thank you a lot. It's really a pleasure being here. Uh, my name is Berat and I'm founder of MIGPORT. Uh, MIGPORT is an online platform that connects institutions and refugees so that institutions can prepare better solutions for refugees. So this is actually what we do. We help refugees provide feedback to institutions who are already working for them, and they can actually exchange knowledge with each other. So how did you come up with that idea? Like you built a social business, being a social entrepreneur. What made you do this in the first place? Actually, I'm, you know, I was born in North Macedonia. And before I was born, it was Yugoslavia. So when I was born, it was Macedonia. Then on, at, on Eurovision, I saw that uh, former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. And then I realized that my country name is former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. I asked my father, I said, which country is this? <laughs> and he said, it's our country. That's our UN name. So I didn't know when I was a kid that our name is former Yugoslav Republic. And then now, like I'm in Turkey as a migrant, and I saw on the news that Macedonia changed name to North Macedonia, <laughs> which, you know, I changed my country without moving anywhere. <laughs> but I also changed my country. Uh, I come to Turkey to study. After Turkey, I went to US and come back. So I'm a global citizen and I'm a migrant. So being a migrant and coming from a conflict country, which, is, which was Macedonia like 10 years, 15 years ago, when I meet with Syrians, actually, I saw myself, you know, I was born in Europe, in Macedonia, but they were born in Middle East, in Syria, so no difference. And I decided that, you know, I have to do something. I felt really connection. And to do something is social businesses. You know, when you have core values to impact people, and then you have strong business model. So this is how I actually started and how I started my social enterprise. Do you think with that background and also my experience that um, like a migrant, refugees, people with that hardship, do we, are we usually better entrepreneurs or does it give them like an edge having that experience? You know, there was a study, even when you go to Erasmus for one semester, you become a better entrepreneur. So that was what the study showed. Actually, I believe that, you know, usually when you look during the Ottoman times, uh, the minorities were better entrepreneurs. Right now, the foreigners are the minorities, and that's why the, actually they can be better entrepreneurs. But there are also very good local entrepreneurs. I really believe to collaboration. If one local and one foreigner come together, then you know we can see innovation and change. 
So even in US, you know, when you see the Google, when you see the Apple, all of them have, uh, you know, foreigner, uh, actually first generation or second generation, even refugee co-founders. I think that's South African, if I remember that right. Yeah, Elon Musk is South African. Uh, Steve Jobs' father is Syrian. Uh, and actually, uh, Steve Jobs was adopted afterwards. You know, his father oh, was yeah, uh, Syrian. Yeah. And actually, he was a student when he was in the US. And they had the kid, and they couldn't look after the kid. Uh, the, you know, Steve Jobs was adopted. When you look, he's Syrian, and he, he's a second generation uh, refugee, or let's say, like an international student father. Also, Sergey Brin, he's a refugee from Russia. So when you see that, so like many of the big, the biggest corporation actually started by foreigners. And innovation comes with, you know, actually with differences. So when you have foreigners in the team, uh, then there is more innovation and that makes people better entrepreneurs, I believe. But let's say you have an idea, you have an innovation, you're building something, you're creating something. So you're on that way, maybe preferably in a mixed team. How do you actually make it profitable? Because what I see a lot, especially in Germany, for example, but maybe it's the same in Turkey and in other places, is that social businesses are not profitable. We have some nice ideas that has an impact maybe, or potentially if it will scale, but we will run out of money very soon uh, or not long after. Actually, uh, like when you start, a, like let's say a commercial startup, first thing is a gap, right? You have to find a gap in a market. And from that, you know, the gap in the market, it should be profitable and there have to, you know, money and cash so that, you know, you can start a startup. So like when we decide as entrepreneurs to do, you know, we look to the gap, we look to the problem, we look to the actually market competitors, and then you decide on your idea. And same, same is with the social entrepreneurship. You see a gap, but the gap is a social gap where there is money. So if there is not money, it's not social entrepreneurship, it's non-profit entrepreneurship. Uh, but the ones that have very big social problems like COVID, you know, everything about the health right now, whatever you do for the social problems of coronavirus is actually social entrepreneurship. So that's why I believe uh, social entrepreneurship can be profitable, but we need to be there uh, to find profitable, actually gaps which can solve social problems and fully distinguish between non-profit side. So. Mm, so it's like, like you said, the difference between a profitable social business and a non-profitable social businesses. And that many people sometimes forget that when you do a non-profitable social business, you're not a business, you're a charity. Yeah. But when you are a for-profit social enterprise, you are like a limited company or an anonymous company. So it's very same to other companies. Only thing what matters is that you solve a social problem. Uh, but whereas, you know, you, you have so many big corporations, big startups, you know, they solve very big gaps in the market or they solve a very big problem. So same happens with the social enterprises. They solve a very big social problem and they do it with earning money and it's not bad to earn money with solving problems. But let's say you're a normal business, but um, you would like to become more socially conscious, having an impact. What would be the first steps that any business can take, regardless of where we are, to become more socially conscious and do an impact? Uh, actually, I wrote just a report about uh, corporate social responsibility of Europe and Turkey just two weeks ago. And uh, we did it with some Europeans and some Turks. Uh, and then, um, you know, there, uh, you know, we were talking about how corporations can be more socially active. So when a corporation uh, becomes more socially active, they have 
corp CSR, like corporate social responsibility. But if a startup is started as a social startup, uh, they are already social enterprise. You know, they don't have to be like have a CSR. They have to have CSR, of course. But they started with the you know social cause, which makes them already social. But they have to be more well structured. But in terms of uh, you know companies, if companies want to be more socially inclusive, and also which gives a better image for the you know better image for the company and for the startup, UN Sustainable Development Goals actually can be integrated into the company structure in their rules and regulation, in their core values. Each, if each company tackles one social problem, we wouldn't have any social problem in ten years. Uh, and I believe in that. So that's why I want to see. Uh, new social enterprises, but as well as the current entrepreneurs to tackle some social problems. That's interesting. Let's say do a thought process a bit further here. You have an idea you're working on, some social issue and what it is, and now you want to build it up, scale it. Maybe it already works that you do. Like you impacted with one of your former companies, I remember you said uh, millions, uh, a lot of people. How would you scale? any startup solution, especially in the social area? Actually, it's first I see whether it's a profitable business or it's a non-profitable business. If it's a non-profitable business, uh, I do it non-profit. But if it's a profitable business, I do it for profit and I distinguish it from the first day. And with the one that we had millions, we had over 10 million users. And that was, uh, you know, a website which government owned. So, you know, like uh, in that perspective, it was non-profit. You know, because the government wouldn't lend the website to me. But if I convince the government to start this website, then it's a non-profit social impact that can impact millions of people. And we as company do it together. So that's uh, when we do non-profit, like when I start personal non-profit businesses. So I see first whether it's a non-profit or for-profit. If it's a for-profit, I go and meet with my clients. I try to understand their problems. And after understanding their problems, seeing the big gap, I solve the problem, and that's how I make it sustainable. Hmm. Seeing like the gap, like you said, the issue, and then where can it be scaled? Okay. Really understanding. Yeah, the scale actually really matters. Whether it can scale or not, whether the gap, for instance, there are sometimes some social problems, but no one gets money. So then it should be a non-profit. But there are some social problems which really institutions are spending tons of money. Then being a for-profit has a market, so you can sustain. And there is also hybrid models nowadays. So hybrid models are the combination of for-profit and non-profit ones. So they have both hybrid structure, and they say we are for-profit and non-profit at the same time. So uh, they sell some things, but they also get donations. I think I think that's also a good model, uh, which also. But in that perspective, the organization should be very transparent. Because if it's a non-profit money and if you use it for for-profit, then it can be conflict. Uh, so you should prepare the structure from the beginning so that any problem would occur in the future. Yeah, so I really believe that you're doing that properly. <laughs> then you started your business in Turkey, not in your home country, in a different place. So I guess for me, it would be interesting to know what makes a market like Turkey maybe interesting for entrepreneurs as an emerging market. As an emerging market, actually, Turkey uh, like has one of the biggest GDPs. And also, like when I come to Turkey in 2012, so like there were estimations that Turkey will be in top eight, uh, you know, GDP countries in the next 30 years. So that's why you see all the European countries and companies invested in Turkey. And for the entrepreneurship uh, side, 
Uh, there is also very good ties with U.S. and international entrepreneurship arena. I'm here, but I can, you know, pitch to an investor in U.S. very easily. Uh, and it's also, you know, uh, so this is very entrepreneurial, I guess. Unfortunately, we don't have much investment in Turkey to the startups, uh, but it started to get better. Find a good gap, uh, good market in Turkey, uh, then you can scale up a business. Udemy, you know Udemy? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, I know that one. That was yeah, the, quite he, successful. Yeah, they were also a Turkish startup, but they, they went to US and they started as a US company in US. Eren Bali is Turkish. And uh, so he was also born in a very rural part of Turkey. Uh, but, you know, right now his company is one of the biggest companies. So, and he learned this entrepreneurship actually skills here in Turkey. And Turkey has 10 million foreigners, actually, like, we have so, so many foreigners here, so it also gives you a very good network. But also, I guess, like you already talked a bit about, like, the good things about being an entrepreneur in Turkey, what you can do here. Would you add anything to that to say being an entrepreneur abroad in general, like an expertpreneur, or how would you ever call that? Uh, Migrapreneur, I'll call, call it. Some, <laughs> some people call it expertpreneur. Uh, but when you are a migrantpreneur, you see the country different than the locals. You see all the gaps. And this, I, I think, made me an entrepreneur because I come here, I see where people struggle. Uh, I see where I struggle. And uh, also that makes me to be more alert to the gaps in the market. So when you're a foreigner, it's not bad. You can see what where locals actually, uh, like where locals, uh, you know, where the things with locals don't work. And you can just innovate new stuff for that. So, like, I think although foreigners have tendency to be entrepreneur, even by force, even, or even by their choice, because sometimes you have no other option. Uh, let me explain you this. So if I applied as a Turkish to one of the companies, I would get job very easily. And maybe if I get a job very easily, I wouldn't be an entrepreneur. So I didn't want to deal with all companies and convince them to hire me because it takes so much time to convince that you are a foreigner, blah, 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 blah. So I said, let's start my own company because I don't want to deal with these human resources. No, that's, that's an interesting way to put it. You say, I become an entrepreneur because it's so hard to get a job. So I make my <laughs> not own only it's, hard, it's not only hard to get a job, but it's very, you know, for foreigners, it even takes so much time to get a job. Even if you deserve it, it takes time, time, time. You know, like even when I was a student, I was accepted to work uh, as an intern in a company. And then again, because I don't have the nationality, I couldn't start working just because of the nationality issues. So for like the companies didn't know how to hire me and they didn't want to spend much energy on to find how to fire some, someone who is a student. So, and I said, I don't want to deal anymore with this. Let's be an entrepreneur. <laughs> mm -hmm. And let's maybe do some like personal questions also on you. Um, what would yeah, be interesting sure. for me to know is you had some voluntary engagement or a bit, you had a lot of engagement even before your business and in between that. Did that voluntary engagement prepare you for the entrepreneurship life? Did it help you in any way? So when I was in high school, I became the regional uh, like youth director of Red Crescent and Red Cross, you know. In Macedonia, it's Red Cross. In Turkey, it's Red Crescent. And then I become, because I was a regional coordinator, I was... Uh, I tried to do something to converge Albanians, Turks, and Macedonians to talk about peace. You know, we were doing events, 
And then I saw that, you know, when you do, when you participate in NGOs, it really gives you an aspect about, you know, your own potential. And then when I come in Turkey, I already had the experience. And when I met for my first social startup, which has 10 million users, I had the experience from my previous NGO, and I used all of those skills to convince actually head of migration management government, let's say. And they were, you know, I was 18 years old, but they didn't even understand that I'm 18 years old. And they were convinced just because of, you know, my NGO experience. That can give like, definitely an edge when you have, especially, I guess, for young students or people who don't, don't have that much work experience, get the experience somewhere else, maybe in these organizations. Yeah, even from the very young age. So if I, start, if I started to volunteer in NGOs in university, it would be very late. Uh, but I started in a high school and learned many things from the high school. So uh, even, you know, the regional co regional coordinator left all the work to us as students and we were doing everything in the city. And it was really fun, you know, like I got to understand everything what happens. Now you're doing a lot of stuff, you know, like you still, I guess, have your engagement, you're teaching people, you have your businesses to run, so many things at the same time. So I wonder a bit is like, how do you manage your time? How do you even get all these things under a hat at the same time? I work from home, which, you know, I can catch up with all my works. I did it as an office. So even my, you know, actually colleagues, we work in the home. We used to be in the actually incubation center, but going to incubation center, you know, bringing your laptop every day, it really took lots of my energy. So I decided to do sports outside and do actually, you know, work from home. So that really helped me to, you know, actually manage my time. And right now with COVID, everyone is experiencing this, you know, working from home. In that perspective, I was used to that. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me, bother me much. So I can survive with working with home, but I cannot survive with not going out at all. So that's what I'm suffering. <laughs> Guess one needs a balcony at least. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we don't have, our balcony is like in the living room, so. Uh, I wish we had a balcony so to go there and work. But and I started doing meditation in home, which really helped me to focus. Uh, but uh, I'm, you know, I'm planning everything, uh, and I, I like really driving the things, you know. And when I drive, uh, I used to not to do so much planning, but right now I do planning. Even I do planning for two years, like what I will do. <laughs> it gives me, you know, like it, it actually like I believe to the anchor, anchor event, anchor effect. So if you target something, you reach even above or below, <laughs> but you have to target something so that we reach that. So I target something, and when I target something, I don't know how, like, how will I do that, but I try to plan it, how to get there. Mm -hmm. So and it really helped me, actually, to do and manage all the stuff. Right now, before talking to you, I had some other stuff. I'm managing right now Coronaton. Uh, with, I'm coordinating Coronaton, which is an online hackathon where Turkish uh, entrepreneurs, students, professors come together and find solutions for COVID social problems. Uh, we are doing at the same time running that. And we had over 50 stakeholders, including Facebook, UNDP, ministries. Like it, it is very big right now in Turkey. Everyone talk, is talking about that. Uh, and at the midport right now, I I'm trying to catch up with my reports, with my clients. So I'm here with the pet podcast. I'm really enjoying talking to you, but you know, like for that, uh, everything is written and I try to actually catch my agenda, which, you know, I'm struggling, but I, I, I hope I'm, do, I, I'm good at that. That's good. Yeah, like 
I like with the aspect that you just mentioned, um, have like a goal, you know, where you want to achieve, set yourself a plan, and you might not even know how it will work out, but you still go at it. And that's yeah. good. Execution. Execution, execute. Then I think that's a good follow up to my last question also to you. What would be your, like, your main advice to any aspiring entrepreneur, especially social entrepreneurs? Actually, uh, you know, with Nikport, we are solving the problems of refugees, which is really, really critical. Uh, you know, when you look to the NGOs, they're all NGOs. They're not even, you know, corporations. We have banks. They are very formal. And that's, that, those are my clients. And, uh, you know, with Nikport, we try to actually first understand who, how, like, what they are struggling with managing migration because they have over, you know, 50 million US dollars actually spending for refugees. And when you see the outcome is not very good. And I decided how I can do this more effectively. And then I said, why don't we have a platform where refugees provide feedback to these organizations? And these organizations actually can manage migration better with big data analytics. So uh, at first I went to meet with the NGOs. I explained the big data analytics four years ago and where there was no big data on the internet even maybe. <laughs> first they tried to understand what is big data. And I said, then I understand that they uh, buy reports. They don't call it big data, they call it reports. And I say my business model is reports because now I understand how they get this kind of skills, needs, and feedback of refugees. They do surveys, so they don't do big data. But I do everything online. Uh, we don't do on fails. We don't get personal information. But we help organizations actually understand the problems of refugees so that they can address those problems. In Turkey, we have 5 million refugees. In Germany, 1 million. Uh, when you see, you cannot do surveys with all of them monthly. It takes, you know, even more than uh, entire refugee spending if you do survey each month with a refugee. So I said, you have to do it, but if you do it only with 500 people, you will not understand their problems because 1 million people, 5 million people wouldn't reflect, like 500 people wouldn't reflect their problems. And right now we try to convince many of them, they get our reports, they get our consultancy, and we have uh, like, Actually, we can't sustain ourselves, but right now we aim to go to the other countries. My uh, you know, suggestion is to the social entrepreneurs. When you meet with an investor, investor doesn't know about social entrepreneurship. So uh, don't get actually disappointed by that. <laughs> talk about money. <laughs> when you talk with an NGO, don't talk about money. <laughs> talk about their problems. When you talk with the corporations, talk about that they will spend less. Uh, try to understand their gaps and build your business according to that. So, like, I, I learned it in a bad way, <laughs> you know, for three years by, you know, going up and down every day. Uh, but it really gave me an experience to deal with this crisis management, which I also use right now for COVID response uh, in Turkey. So I would suggest all entrepreneurs that, uh, you know, believe in yourself, believe in your dreams, listen to people, but don't act based on what people say, act on what you believe. Mm -hmm. So that's my suggestion to all entrepreneurs. That's some nice finishing words. Um, I thank you a lot, Berat, for taking the time. And uh, anybody listening, watching this, I would suggest check out Berat and Mikport, what we're doing. It's a great thing. And I think you will go on to help many more migrants and refugees. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> In the end, we are all global citizens. 
We hope you liked this episode of the DoDash Investability Podcast. To listen to more episodes, subscribe to our channel. Also, go to DoDash.com to join our global startup community and get the support you need to become an investable business and get investors. See you there.